Sunday morning, and we've been talking about being perfect. I heard somebody on the radio try to explain it, and I thought, oh, good grief. Perfect. And she was talking about husbands and wives and how that if you want to be perfect towards your husband, you need to ask him to help you make the bed. It's just the stuff she was saying was goofy. And uh, But when the Bible speaks of being perfect, it's talking about the likeness of Jesus. Like Jesus. And the word perfect, the common word is teleos. And it doesn't mean making the bed, if that may be part of it, but it's not. The stuff she was saying was about around the household and the husband and wife getting along together. Well, this is talking about, it's teleos means mature. In one place, it's it's translated man, going up to be a man. Another place, it's it's translated full age, and that's grown up. That's maturing and growing up. It's if you're born, you're fed right, you're exercised right. Your mom and dad make you go to go to bed at the right time. And you have to have an education and everything that has to do with maturing and growing up. You have other words, teleos or teleotes, T-E-L-E-I-O-T-E-S. And that's the word perfection. That's mentioned twice in the Bible. Perfection or mature. Mature being a grown person. You have other words, teleo, T-E-L-E-I-O-O. And all of them have to do with finishing something. Finish. Well, this is what we are commanded to be, therefore, perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Be mature. Grow up. There is not, maturity is not out here in the world. I don't hear it coming from any standard. So, this has to do with what we've, we're talking about in general about predestination. It's all about predestination. Everything that you go through, when the Bible says, for whom he did foreknow, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, Romans eight twenty nine. And he didn't just predestinate us to be in heaven. Whom? Who's? There's an H sound. It's a breathing sound. And the critical mark. And then for no prognosco. Prognosco means to... It, we get our word prognosis from that when a doctor does a prognosis. And he is checking you out. I call the doctors, I don't believe they're doing a prognosis. I believe they're doing a prognosis because they're examining you and give, making an educated guess about what's wrong with you. Well, God knew exactly this. It means to know intimately ahead of time, beforehand. So the people that God foreknew, he's predestined. To be conformed 
to be conformed. And all of this has to do with maturity and growing up. And every bit of it has to do with setting aside or putting off the old man. Old man. The Bible talks about that. Paul talked about it constantly. In Romans, the seventh chapter, he talks about two men in us. He says, you've got the outer man, and that's self, serves self. You have the inner man, that's Christ, that serves the law of God. And when you're born again, you're a brand new believer, you're, you're not really mature at all. You're just a kid. I don't care if you're 50 years old or 70 years old. I had a, we had a fellow come here. His name was, we called him Big Al. And he was a great big guy. And uh, he was 72, 73. I was in my mid-50s. And uh, Al would come up to me, and he came out of the Catholic Church, and he'd tell me, I'm just a baby in this. I'm just learning. Well, the inner man is Christ. And as you live through life, God perfects. He perfects and causes the outer man, the inner man, to grow consistently and you grow through life and there's something that wants to stop you and that is envy strife proud God has to get rid of all of those things and much more I can make a list as long as your arm but all of these and much more He's got to take it out of you in order to finish this predestinated to be conformed. Predestinate, prohorizo, pro, well, let me put it down here. Prohorizo. Prohorizo has to do with the light. Prohorizo. There's no H's in the Greek, but there is that diacritical mark. It's a breathing sound. Whole rizzo. It is our word horizon. And that has to do, pro means before. So God has pro, pre-horizoned us, or predetermined us. The ones that he foreknew. He's predetermined us. predetermined us for the light and he says that and that has to do with prison 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 is the word phulake p-h-u-l-a-k-e p-h-u-l-a-k-e that's the word prison and prison means that the this word philarche means the division of day and night or light that would that would connect with horizon <coughs> light and darkness so when you have a horizon you can only see the horizon from the light you can't see it from the dark. You have dark and light. 
in prison would be either you're imprisoned in darkness or you're imprisoned in light. Paul said, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The word prisoner is the word D-O-U-L-O-S. It means a slave. I'm a slave in the light for Christ. Paul said, you were in darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So we've been predetermined for the light. Light is always equated with truth. Truth and Jesus are the same. Jesus said, I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So if you come out of darkness into light, you can't come out on your own. You don't know how. You're dead when you're in darkness. Dead. If you come to the light, God has picked a certain few people to be in the light. And there's the ones that's predestined to conform, to be conformed, sumorphos, S-U-M-M-O-R-P-H-O-S. Sumorphos means to be shaped, morphe, in fellowship. The only way you can really be shaped into the image of Christ The only way you can be shaped into his image, icon, likeness. After you're born again, you can't be allowed to run loose on your own. You're not not born for that. You're born to put off the old man, and that's a lifetime. When the Lord would say, put off the old man, put off is not something that happens all at once. Is something that happens throughout your entire life when this inner man Christ takes over your life, takes a long time for him to strike envy out and strife out and pride out and all the other negative things that we don't want to be doing. Takes a long time, but over the years, God will strike it all out and he'll be perfecting you into maturity and he's going to cause this outer man to die and to vote with the inner man, it takes two to cause a man to die in Israel. It takes two witnesses there in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus. It takes two. So God's going to get this inner man, this inner man, to cause the outer man to vote with him by putting you through trials and tribulation, tribulation, and cause he's going to cause us to be perfected and be like Jesus, the older we get, the longer we live, the less of self that we want in our life. That's the way it works. If you're young, I'm sorry, you're going to have to go through a lot of fire and trials before you'll come to that place. I tell people all the time, I don't fight anymore. I don't battle people. I'm not interested in me anymore. I used to be interested in me used to be interested in new cars and houses and stuff and investments and diamond rings, but I'm not interested in that at all. All I want to do is make sure the sheep hear the truth. That's all I'm interested in. So if you're going to... Predestination is about Christ-likeness, becoming like him, but that doesn't happen one day. It doesn't happen in a week or two or a month or six months or five years. It happens over your entire life. There's some things I want to talk about to you today. One of the things he's going to have to burn out in you is envy. 
envy. Envy is wanting things that somebody else has, or you don't like the idea that they're ahead of you in life, or they had a promotion that you think belonged to you. If you learn to believe, like I believe now, if you'll learn to believe this, that everything that happens to you is the will of God, the sooner you can learn that, the sooner you can enter into God's rest. The spiritual Sabbath. The Bible says that Israel could not enter into God's rest because of unbelief. Unbelief don't mean you're not a believer in God. There's a Jesus came to a man one day over there in Mark 9 and said, he said, do you believe I can do all these things? He said, yes, but Lord, there's a part of me that don't believe. Could you help my unbelief? Does anybody have a little bit of unbelief that you have a hard time conquering? That will happen in time. Lord, help my unbelief. I, I, I want to believe you about everything. That's when we enter into the kataposis. That's a word in Hebrews 3 and 4, third and fourth chapter, that means rest. And then he compares the kataposis in the fourth chapter with the Sabbath. And Sabbath, sabbatismos, means rest. And if he said those that were in the wilderness that God killed off in the wilderness, they couldn't enter into my rest because of their unbelief. When they got up here to Kadesh Barnea, here they are coming out of Egypt. Here's Israel. Here's Egypt. That's the Delta land. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. When they came up to, when they left Mount Sinai in the southern Sinai Peninsula, they came up here to Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea. And God says, send spies into the land of Anak. Anak is on the southwestern end of Israel. That was called the land of the Philistines in the Old Testament. And it was called the land of Anak when the Lord told them to go in. And the Anakims were real tall giants. And Gath is up here in that same area. And Goliath of Gath was nine foot six. So these were probably his ancestors. So when they get to Kadesh, they go in there to the land and they say, we can't go fight these people. They're too big. Now, that's amazing because when they left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea here. It goes down here and widens out down here. They crossed the Red Sea going over here into the Sinai Peninsula. And when they crossed the Red Sea, God destroyed the largest army in the world. He put, God put Pharaoh and his armies down in the bottom of the Red Sea. And the Bible says in the 14th chapter of Exodus that he pulled the wheels off their chariots and said, Now drive against my people. You think God wanted them to accept him? And Moses was over there on the other side of the sea going, We're going to sing just as I am. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Get out of that water. Just as I am. With... Won't you accept Christ? We don't believe in that here. 
So he said, I'm going to kill everybody off. And when they get over here to cross <laughs> to cross the Jordan River to go in and possess the land right above the Dead Sea, and here's the here's the Sea of Galilee in the north, and the and the Jordan River runs from the Sea of Galilee down into the Dead Sea. Well, God says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to kill everybody off that it was unbelief. You didn't believe I could be behind you to wipe out all those men of Anak. So everyone that's over 20 years old, that was draft age in Israel. They don't have the draft anymore. That was how old you had to be to be in the army. So God says, I'm going to kill off everybody from 20 years old and upward so that no one will be alive that was 20 or over when I told you to go in there and attack that land of Anak. And he killed off everybody. So one thing you have to remember, when you get to Deuteronomy, and they're about to cross the land, Deuteronomy comes from duo and nomos. Nomos is the Greek word law. We got our word duo or duet from this. It means second law. It's a second witness against Israel. When they get to Deuteronomy, all of the unbelievers are dead. And the Lord says over there in Hebrews, they could not enter into my rest because of unbelief. The word unbelief is the word. Does anybody remember that word, unbelief? Thank you, Fred. A P I S T I S. Pistis is the word faith. The alpha primitive negates the word and gives an opposite meaning. Apistis means no faith. He said, When you enter into my rest, and he was equating Israel with the rest of or Canaan with the rest of God, he said, You can't rest in all the things that's happening in your life to get rid of this envy and strife and so forth, you've got to be able to rest to get rid of that. Here's what he's saying. God has declared the end from the beginning. Everything over here, the very end of time or the end of your life has been declared from the beginning, and from ancient times, everything that's not yet done. Here you are living right here, and tomorrow you're going to have a problem with your house and with late on your payment, and you're going to have a hard time buying groceries and making your bills, or one of your kids is sick. See, God says, everything that's not yet done, I have already declared it. What are you going to do with that? I've already declared it. You Are you going to worry about it when you get there? I'll tell you what. It's really hard even at my age not to fret over some things. I don't worry like I used to. I very seldom ever consider anything. I just say this is the will of God. Every time something happens that upsets me or bothers me, I'll say this is the will of God. Thank you, Lord, for what's happening. And I get to resting in it knowing that it's all 
what God wants, and that's what's going to conform us to the likeness of Jesus. You think Jesus was worrying about being on the cross? You think he was worrying? He said, I lay my life down. No man takes my life from me. I'm laying it down willingly. So when they're taking him, nailing him to the cross, they're beating him with a scourge. Is he worrying? I'm not getting things accomplished the way I wanted to, Lord. I thought I'd become king of, uh, they'd crown me king and we'd take our armies and go over and conquer Rome. No. He said, this is the plan and the program. My father has arranged it and I'm fulfilling it. So your life has already been arranged, all of it. And we're predestined to conform to Christ's likeness. But that's not envy. That's not strife. Look over here in, let me give you some things on this. Look over here in Matthew 27. Matthew 27. And this will show you how you have to change now you have to change. In order to rest, you've got to believe that God's doing everything. You can't rest if you don't believe he's doing everything. All right. Matthew, the 27th chapter. They're going to, they're going to crucify Jesus. 27 and verse, let's read here in... Uh, Verse 17, Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I should release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? It was the custom of Rome at the time of this time of the year during the festivals of the Jews to release one criminal. And then Barabbas was a scoundrel. Or you think I should release Christ or Barabbas? For they knew, in verse 18, for Pilate knew that for envy they had delivered Jesus. They were envious. They were phothonos, P-H-O-T-H-O-N-O-S, phothonos. Phothonos means their thinking is rotten. You have rotten thinking when you're envious of somebody else. You're twisted in your thinking, not realizing and believing that God's doing everything. We have to stop being envious about anybody. Quit wanting what they've got. You think you want what somebody else has got until you get it. I've had a lot of young preachers come here. Well, they became preachers when they came here, and and they thought it was time for them to be the pastor. We got one here already. If you want to preach, don't write me letters correcting me. Go out there and get you a church or get you a building or meet in a house and start your own church. That's what you're insisting, because I'm not going to quit. That's the only way that you'll get here. I have to quit. But you have to, I've said this before. You're going to have to get in good. If you expect to follow me and take over, you're going to have to get in good with Mary, Mike, and Eric. Why them? Because back in about 1991, well, that's all we had here. Oh, Mike came in 93 or whatever it was, 94. He could tell you the exact date and time. Uh, 
got that kind of memory. But when Mike came, we had a, we have a, we're registered downtown with the government. We have a corporation, and they're the officers. So if I die, you got to ask them if you can preach. You got it? People say, what are we going to do for preaching when you leave? We'll ask them. They're in charge. We didn't have anybody else, so they were assigned to be the officers when we incorporated, right? And if you think that I'm stealing money out of the church, I can't do that. That's against the law, goofballs. I could. I can't steal the money from the church. I got a building. We have a building fund, and I can't take that and spend it on me. I've been accused of, you probably got a million dollars in that building fund, and you, you're just going to... That shows that's a sign that there's some envy coming from the other side of the fence. I can't do that. You don't even know how we operate. We operate, we are a business. We don't have to pay taxes, but we have to register every year. And each one of us has to pay our personal taxes. You don't even know what's going on when you start gossiping because of your envy. No, I'm, we are a tax. We are tax free, but I'm not a member of a 501c3. I'm not 501c3, but we are a tax uh, free organization. We don't pay taxes on anything. Now, some people. The Bible says I've got this paper here. Gave it to everybody. Word study, envy, contention, strife. I'm going to give you a few things on envy here. Uh, the Bible says in Romans one twenty nine on page 2 that this church of Rome was being filled with all unrighteousness. This is not talking about sinners. This is what the church at Rome was filled with. Unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers were those people who love to gossip then in philippians 1 15 the next verse on this some indeed preach christ even of envy and strife and some also of goodwill then he goes on to say it matters not as long as they preach christ if you'll preach christ go ahead and be envious of me and you're trying to put you're trying to put a weight on me to hold me back well if you want to preach christ go ahead you want to be jealous of me and envious go ahead just preach Christ. Of course, in time, he'll get you over the envy. Then in First Timothy 6 and 4, a man that preaches any other gospel and consents not to hold some words the previous verse says, he is proud, knowing nothing. Proud is the word tufao. You can write this down if you want to. Tufao, T-U-P-H-O-O. Tufao means to be blind. It actually means to be slowly consumed by smoke with no fire. No fire. Adokimas, A-D-O-K-I. That's the word reprobate. It means, dokimazo means to be tried as, you're, as though you're in a fire, Adokimas means no fire. These people that are proud, they know nothing. 
They're proud. Tufao comes from the word tuflos, T-U-P-H-L-O-S, which means blind. They preach any other doctrine, not the wholesome doctrine of Christ. They're blind. And it goes on to say that they, they're doting about questions and striving over words. You don't have to strive over words. Just look it up. Whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. Look over here where I was going to take you a while ago. Look over here in Luke 20. The Pharisees were so jealous of Jesus and so envious of him, envying somebody because they got something you don't have. Maybe you don't want that. Do you want the payment on it? Do you want to work? People don't have any idea how hard I've worked in my life. I used to work 90 hours a week in real estate around the clock till I worked myself into the hospital. I was trying to do that for years. See if I can get myself in the hospital, if I can work hard enough to make my health break down. And it did. You know what you think somebody else has got that you don't have when you're not willing to work? put your life on the line I put my life on the line with this ministry constantly I've had young men come in want to take over gossip envious I'm not mad at them I just say to them if you want to preach go get your congregation start with one or two people like we did okay now envy fothanos it's ill will it's jealousy it's it makes you sick I used to be envious of people ahead of me on stage. I wanted to be out there and show off that I was a better singer than them or as good a singer, or I could do better than they did. I used to want that. I don't want that anymore. I don't even want to sing. Most of y'all probably know that. When Ken's not here, I can't hardly get through two songs. It's such a strain. I've got all this bronchial problem in my lungs. God says, I need to make you like me, Jim Brown. I got to get rid of your voice. And he did. Just as sure as the world. I got the rhythm, but boy, my vibrato is just whoa, whoa, whoa. I hate to hear somebody sing and they've gotten into their late 60s and their vibrato. You know what the vibrato is? The vibrato is the vibrating in your voice. Watching Ray Stevens one night on TV and he's singing. Everything is beautiful. His vibrato was in space. I thought, Ray, stop that. I can't stand to hear somebody singing and everybody thinks he's great because he used to be famous. He's not great. He's not a great singer anymore. They look used to look at Frank Sinatra and say, isn't he just great and he's 65 years old and he don't have any pitch and his vibrato is somewhere off in the North Pole, I'm going to. No. And I could hear him flat. He was always flat on his pitch. You can actually hear yourself being flat when you're older. You can't quite hit your pitch, and you can hear it, and ain't nothing you can do about it. You're too old. You're over the over the hill. It's done. <laughs> Quit. You got all these young singers coming along, and the old singers going, I'm doing great. No, you're not. Yeah. You're done. Like Mary said, stick a fork in it. It's over. Look here. This is how angry 
the Pharisees were at Jesus. They always trying to trick him. Let's trick Jim Brown into, let's take his words and twist them and make them mean something that he didn't say. The Pharisees are after Jesus. They're proud. They're envious. The Bible says they killed him for envy. He was getting the attention. Not only that, he was calling them down for their halakha, wasn't he? Now here in in the 20th chapter of Luke, I like this. This is one of my favorite uh, situations with Jesus and the Pharisees. In verse 20, they watched him and sent forth spies to spy out Jesus. Now, that's really something, isn't it? I've had people say, we sent spies over there to grace and truth to see what you're doing. I'm up here preaching, <laughs> preaching the Bible. If you'll just call me and ask me on the phone, I'll tell you, okay? Spies. We've actually had that. Is anybody familiar with that? Mary remembers that. Had people saying, we sent spies over there. To do what? I just don't even understand that. Spies which should feign themselves. Feign. Hupocrino. Hupocrino. My. H-U-P-O-K-R-I-N-O-M-A-I. It comes from word hupocrites. Hupocrino is the word judge. That is the the magistrate that sits on the bench and pronounces the judgment of the law. Cretes is the judgment judgment that is pronounced. And a hypocrite is an actor. This is an actor under an assumed character. That's an actor. So what they were doing, they were assuming a character of a friend, and they come up to him going, Master, could we ask you a question? They're trying to trick him. They were so jealous of him. Jealousy is not like Jesus. You can't be jealous. You can't be envious. You cannot be uh, hatred towards your brother. You can't mistreat one another. Every character of Christ, you've got to be meek. You've got to be poor in spirit. You've got to be gentle and kind-hearted. You're not allowed by the law of God to act on your own personal desires of hatred and jealousy and Oh, I think I deserve this. You don't deserve anything. Have you ever come to that conclusion yet? You deserve nothing but hell. That's all. So when you think, I deserve that, I'm smarter than them. Well, you probably are, but I bet you don't have as much perseverance as I have. I got as much perseverance as anybody ever met. I'll keep going till I fall down dead. Now, I know I've got that, but you're probably smarter than me, a lot of you. Or at least you think you are. I don't know. I don't know about people. Now, and they watched him and sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men that they might take hold of his words. They're only coming to him saying nice, smooth words 
to trip him up. They're going to trip up God. That's really funny, isn't it? They were stupid. And that they might take hold of his words, that they might deliver him into the power and the authority of the governor, Governor Pilate. And they ask him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest. Well, there's what they did. They said, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly. Could you answer a question for us? And they're trying to trick him with good words and fair speeches. Good words and fair speeches, don't listen to that. When somebody's trying to slicker you, can you understand that? It's like I've said before, you go to a car dealer and they, I've got the car for you, it's you. I just picture it, you. You mean it's got a grill that looks like my teeth? Is that what you mean? Just a con. Con is always good words, isn't it? Then he says, that they might take hold of his words, that they might deliver him to the authority. And they ask him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, you lying devils. Doesn't say that, but I'm putting that in there. Neither you accept thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. We're going to kill you one day. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why are you tempting me? Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription is on it? And they answered and said, Why Caesar's? And he said unto them, Render unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, pay your taxes, and unto God the things that be God's. They were trying to get him to say, you see, if they can get him to say, you need to pay tribute to Caesar, they're going to say, you're against Israel because all of Israel hated the Caesar. They, they were under the rule of the Roman Empire or the beast. And they would not, could not take hold of his words before the people and they marveled at his answer and kept their mouths shut. Now, they were trying to trick him. They finally had to get two witnesses when it came time for him to die and they testified falsely against Jesus and that was blasphemy. Then they crucified him for something they said he was speaking against the word of God. Now, look over here. Look over here in Acts. Look at another. The thing that really people, that bothers people is they think something belongs to them that belongs to God. Now, when you're over here in the 13th chapter of Romans, now not Romans, Acts. Acts 13. Now, Paul was the, this is Paul's first missionary journey in the 13th chapter of Acts. This is where Paul started off on his, and you're going to find anytime somebody's angry at a preacher of truth, there is a lot of envy, a lot of jealousy involved. That is not like Christ. We need to check ourselves out. 
Every time we think we deserve something, we don't know why God is holding us back. You need to learn to rest in that. That's where God wants you. We got a couple of fellows just moved here and they want jobs and they want success. And always, any of us need to work and be successful to a degree in America. But we don't need to be jealous of somebody else because we can't have what they've got. I have been, I have been broke. I have gone into bankruptcy at 40 years old. Started my life from scratch. Everything you see that I possess or own, this ministry has happened since I was 40. I'm 79 now. It all took place since then. Didn't have nothing. Didn't have a job. Didn't know what I was going to do. I heard there was money in real estate, so I went and got me a real estate license and took off like a bullet and started making money. Never had made it before. I found out the the cure, the cure for being unsuccessful is work, work, work. That's the only cure there is. You have to go after it with all your might. That's why I went after real estate. Went after music that way, but music has nothing to do with how good you are. It has to do with who your connections are. So you got to work on your connections. And that's the truth, and everybody that's been in music knows that. Everybody that's in music is not on the top of the world because they were that good. It's because they had the right connections. Now, look over here in Acts 13. Paul takes off on his first missionary journey. He goes off. He goes up to, well, that's about as good a map as I can get. He leaves Jerusalem. There's Jerusalem right here. He goes up here to Antioch. When he gets to Antioch, he goes on over here to Cyprus. It's called Salamis here. Goes to Cyprus and has a run-in with a man there on Cyprus and calls him, you child of the devil. That's not very nice, is it? And then he takes off up here to Pergamos. It's called it's got all these different names through the years. Well, he leaves here and goes up to Antioch. Antioch is, you got an Antioch over here. You got an Antioch up here. That's because Antiochus Epiphanes had been the, he is the, you'll find his story over there in Daniel 11, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the, the, the monarch of Syria. But there were several Antiochus. There was Antiochus the Great. Uh, and there were many named Antiochus. But this is the guy right here. They named Antioch after. If you were in an Antioch, it come from him. If you're out here in Antioch, Tennessee, it came from that man right there. Antioch. Pinnipenese, Antioch, uh, the Great, and so forth. Now, so Paul is going out here on his first missionary journey, gets up there to Antioch, preaches the resurrection of Christ. These Pharisees at the synagogue where he goes up there and preaches, 
These Pharisees get enraged. They have a tremendous jealousy and envy of Paul. He's getting a lot of attention. All of the town turns out the next... Uh, he, they, they ask Paul, would you come back next week? Evidently, they had something in their minds about Paul. And they get real jealous of him. Look here in verse 42. Verse 42 of 13. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath, seven days later. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. He was getting the crowds they weren't getting at the synagogue. They were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting Paul and blaspheming God. These were the Pharisees. These weren't pagans. And they were very envious of Paul. When someone gets more attention than the people around them think they deserve, envy raises its ugly head. And people say, I deserve that. I'm smart as Jim Brown. Well, you may be, but you're not going to be pastor here. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life, we turn to the Gentiles. We're leaving the synagogue, and they were forced to leave town. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee for a light of the Gentiles. A lot to be said about that. The Gentiles were the spirits in prison. Remember, we said prison meant the division of day and night of light and darkness. Peter talks about the spirits in prison. And the spirits in prison, according to the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, was the Gentiles from Adam until Christ. The Gentiles could not. They were in darkness. When the Bible says, for whom he did foreknow, he predestined, he predetermined a group of the Gentiles for the light. And that was the Gentile elect as of Acts 2, where God's going to pour out of his spirit on all flesh, red, yellow, white, black, and brown flesh. He's going to pour out. That's the Gentiles. Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. The Gentiles. So this flesh over here in the Old Testament, just the one flesh the the truth was revealed to, and that was the Jewish flesh, started with Adam, went down through Noah, all the way down to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All in Jacob's name was changed to Israel. He had twelve sons that become the nation. And all the way to Christ, and Israel turned away from God, went after the sun and tree God, Bell in the grove, which is the same thing as Christmas. 
So God scattered them all over the earth. So in Acts 2, Paul said, he said, I'm a preacher of the Gentiles. He said that in Galatians, the second chapter. Paul was sent to the Gentiles in every church he went to. Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonica. When he wrote to Timothy, he was pastor at Ephesus, a Gentile church. And when he wrote to Titus, he was a pastor of a Gentile church on Crete. So Paul was wrote all of his epistles, which were 14 of them, I believe, to the Gentiles. And he's saying right here, we're going to the Gentiles. You're out of the picture, Jews. It was the Jews in the synagogue that were trying to kill Paul. Same people that killed Jesus, and it was for envy. In fact, Paul eventually ends up in the hands of the Gentiles after his third missionary journey. After his third journey, he ends up in the hands. He goes on his first journey over here, like so. And it's the it's the Pharisees that are trying to kill him here at Antioch. The next week, he goes over to Iconium right here. The next week, after they run him out of town on a rail, they would have if they'd have known they had if they had a rail and could have tarred and feathered him, we would have done that. But he goes from Antioch to Iconium. These same guys at Antioch at the synagogue over there. They're just gritting their teeth. They're so envious and angry at Paul. They stay mad all week long. That's a lot of anger, isn't it? They're so envious and jealous of him. They're saying, we're going to get this guy. And that's the religious preachers. That's a bunch of Baptist preachers over there. That's what it was. I say that because there's just as much envy in that. And they come over here and they stir up these people at Iconium to run him out of town. This all happens in the 13th, 14th chapter of Acts. This is his first journey. I've got his journeys over here. Let me move this over here and I'll show you his journeys. He had four journeys, uh, three journeys, excuse me. He had three journeys. But his journeys were his missionary trips was not two or three weeks. He spent a year and a half at Corinth on his one journey. He spent three years at Ephesus. You'd have thought he was a pastor, wouldn't you? But this was his first journey from Antioch over here to Salamis, Paphos, up to Perga, Pisidia up to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. So he gets to Lystra, and these guys from Antioch are still enraged at him. Their jealousy was overwhelming. They were so envious of Paul getting attention. How angry do you have to be to travel 75 miles for the next week, and you're still angry enough you want to kill him? Now get those people to run him out of town. He comes down to Lystra. Lystra, when he gets to Lystra, that's in that, uh, in the latter part of that, uh, 
of that 14th chapter. Look over here in 14. 14. 13, 14, and 15 is about Paul's journey. His first journey. It's about this right here. Acts 13, 14, 15. Right up here in this area, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, all of this area up here has a title. It's called Galatia. The reason it's called Galatia because the Gauls, which was a barbaric group, uh, tribe, came in and settled there in Galatia. So when you're reading the book of Galatians, you're very wise to go to the 13th, 14th, 15th chapter of Acts and study that with Galatians, the the whole book of Galatians. Because what's going on in Galatia is what Paul was dealing with on that first journey. And it was because of envy that they were wanting to kill him. Now look over here. They finally go down to Iconium. They go over to Iconium, 75 miles away, talk those people into running him out of town. He gets down to Lystra. Lystra is where a bunch of heathens are. There's no synagogue there. There's no worship of God. And they get down there, and Paul heals a man there, a pagan down there. And when he heals this man, in the 12th verse, we'll look at the 11th verse of the 14th chapter. When the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, the gods have come down unto us in the likeness of men. This man, Paul and Barnabas, they're gods because they healed this man. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Mercury. Mercury was the interpreter of the gods. Sometimes you'll hear me say that this this god Mercury had a counterpart over in Greece, Hermes. When you go to a seminary, they'll teach you hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a course in how to interpret Scripture. I don't think I would really like that. So they call Paul the interpreter of the gods because he did the speaking. Now, notice the people here at Lystra are accepting Paul and Barnabas. In a sort of a way, they're saying, you're gods. But watch what happens. Then the priests... Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifices with the people because they're honoring Paul and Barnabas. They don't think there's anything wrong with them. They're healing people down there. Which when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out, saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions just like you. We're not gods. And preaching to you that ye should turn from those vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea 
and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful season, filling our hearts with food and gladness. With these sayings, scarce restrained they people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. They were trying to stop them, but they couldn't stop them. They're going to make sacrifice. Now, these are heathens. They're accepting Paul and Barnabas. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch. Jews, what were they? They were in the synagogue in Antioch. They came about 75 miles over to Iconium, had him run out of town there because of their envy. And then they come down the following week to Lystra and they get together and cavort with these people and say, let's get this guy. And they twist because of their envy. Here's what happens. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, where he'd just come from two weeks before, who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, they actually convinced these people of Israel, were calling them gods the few days before, said, well, we got to convince you of this, that they're evil men. And they took him outside of the city and stoned him, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. He looked dead. You have to understand the way they stoned somebody. They didn't go out here in the street and pick up a bunch of rocks and throw them at them. They'd take them up on a high precipice, a hill. If they had a building 20, 30 feet high, they'd push them off of it. If they did not, if it didn't kill them, they'd take big boulders. This was stoning, 20, 30 pounds apiece, and throw them down on them. It was worse than getting shot with a gun, worse than getting a spear. You might live through that. You're not going to live through a stoning, but he did. God somehow brought him through it. And all of it was because of jealousy and envy. Envy will kill you. God will destroy you for that. If you go after the pre- if I'm the preacher of God, you people that have come after me, I'm warning you, I'm not going to do anything to you. I'm warning you that God will. If you don't back off and go about your business, God will come after people that go against God's preacher. I'm just giving you some warning. I'm going to do nothing to you. God will. But if you have no fear of God, what does what difference does it make? Then he says, having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the apostles stood round about him, he rose up, came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Oh goodness, he's a glutton for punishment. He's headed down. Iconium, Lystra. Now he's going to go to Derby, another 15 miles away or so. Going to go to Derby and preach. So he goes to Derby. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, he had taught many. They returned again to Lystra. Wow. Paul had a lot of guts, didn't he? That's where they tried to kill him. 
the week before because of their envy and it wasn't the pagans that were trying to kill him it was the religious preachers that's who you got to be concerned about anti-conium and the antioch he said i'm going to go back and confirm these people confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue the faith and that we must through much narrow way let me substitute that there we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of god remember the word tribulation you remember that word don't you that word is t-h-l-i-p-s-i-s it is a form of t-h-l-i-b-o Philebo is the word narrow is the way that leads to life and only a few will find it Philebo is the verb form it means to be pressured on all sides Thalipsis is the noun and every time you find the word tribulation what Paul is saying you have to go through the tribulation the narrow way in order to have eternal life did you know that you have to you have to suffer if you believe in Jesus you can't just believe in any Jesus believing in Jesus is not it it has to be the right Jesus you know that don't you there's many Jesuses out here in the world there's a Baptist Jesus you got to be you got to accept Christ in the Baptist Jesus you have to pray the sinner's prayer among the Baptist Jesus and we don't believe in any of that there's the Jesus of the Roman Catholics you have to eat the body of Jesus and drink the blood of that Jesus you got to specify which Jesus you're talking about if you talk to anybody about Jesus because Paul said there's some people coming to Corinth they're preaching another Jesus another spirit another gospel some preach the Christmas Jesus some preach the Easter Jesus some preach the baptism in water Jesus some preach the pre-tribulation Jesus and none of these things are true the Jesus you preach to somebody be specific let me see what you do Anytime you're going to talk about Jesus to somebody, talk about what he said. Look at him and say, did you know that you have to be hated by the world to go to heaven? Jesus said that. Did you know that you have to go through the narrow tribulation way in order to go to heaven? Jesus said so. Whatever Jesus said, Tell people that. If you're going to witness to them, you're going to tell them about Jesus, you better find out the right one so you can tell them and not confuse them. You've got to be talking about the right Jesus. The daily cross Jesus, the death to self Jesus. Most of the world doesn't believe in any of this. They're preaching the other Jesus in the world. I don't want to go to those churches. If I am not able to go to church and everybody here blows up or goes their way, I'm not going anywhere. I'll stay at home and watch my DVDs because I learned watching my DVDs. 
I don't believe in the Jesus the world is preaching. You're going to talk to people about Jesus. Be sure and tell them which one you're talking about and eliminate those others. That's why people don't want to go to church. You know that? They don't want to go because they find out it's boring. If you're elect, if you're elect, predestinated elect, and you start trying to go to a Baptist church, and they're giving invitation hymns, and that's lasting for 45 minutes, uh, 15 verses of Just As I Am, another 10 of, of uh, Almost Persuaded, and they're trying to get people to walk the aisle, and you're getting confused because you don't know if you're saved or not. Get away from that. That's the wrong Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible says you have to be persecuted, you have to be hated, and it has to be a tribulation way, and that's what Paul is going through. You say, Jim, do I have to go out here and get somebody to stone me? They're going to want to if you tell them the truth about Christmas and about Easter and about predestination, that God does not love everybody. They're not going to like you. Did you know that? They won't like it. I'm tired of the preachers out here, all of them. I got fed up with Billy Graham years ago, long before he died. He didn't preach the gospel. The gospel is daily cross, death to self. The gospel is the blood baptism. The Bible says that the gospel is, Mark the first chapter, first verse, the beginning of the gospel is preparing the way of the Lord. There's only one way. It is a narrow way. It is filled with tribulation. You can't go to heaven without saying something that upsets people somewhere, sometime in your life. You may say, I'm a housewife and I just don't get around people that much. You get around people at the grocery store, the laundromat, don't you? You can say something. If it's in your heart, it will come out of your mouth. You can't stop it. Of the abundance of heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know what somebody believes? Talk to them for five minutes and just listen. What they believe is going to come out their mouth. Specify the Jesus that you believe in. I always tell people what Jesus said. If I say, Jesus said, for whom he did for no, somebody might say, well, Paul said that. Well, Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is the same thing as Christ. Jesus said everything in this book, this was inspired by God to be written for us. If we're going to learn, we have to pay real close attention. Pay close attention to the Jesus you express with your mouth. You have to. Because if you go up talking to somebody about a Jesus out here in the world, it's somebody that's completely unfamiliar with what's going on in the churches. They don't have any idea what you're talking about. The Jesus of the Bible is specific. You have to learn what he said and tell people what he said. Now, there's another example, probably one of the best examples of envy in all the Bible. It's over there in 1 Samuel. Let's go over there. I might, it might take me a couple of weeks to get through this. How much time do I have, Mike? I'm not going to be able to get through all this. 
First Samuel. This is the story of, I call First Samuel the story of Saul and David. Now the man who is the the man who is in charge when you get into First Samuel is the last judge in Israel. Samuel was the last judge. He was the thirteenth judge, starting with Joshua, and then going to Othniel, and then and then Ehud, and then uh, uh, Shamgar, and all through the rest of them. You get down through Gideon, and you get to Jephthah and you get into Samson and finally get to Samuel Samuel was the last judge in Israel 13 of them in fact I got a list of them up here now Saul wanted to kill David he was so envious of David he thought David was trying to steal his throne David wasn't trying to steal anything he was trying to do the will of God. That's it. When you get into the eighth chapter of Samuel, Samuel is the prophet in Israel. His mother's name was Hannah. His mother said, if you will give me a son, Lord, I'll give him back to you. When he came of age, Hannah took him to the temple and gave him to Eli, the high priest. Eli had two wicked, evil sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were very wicked, and God killed them. And the story is long. I've got to go further. I'll go further into that later. You go over here to the eighth chapter, eighth chapter of First Samuel. This is where Saul, the first mention of a king, a man king over Israel, comes from the people. It's because. Because Samuel had two evil sons. How does a prophet of God as righteous as Samuel? That's a good question. Maybe he wasn't tending to things at home. I don't know. Hophni and Phinehas were two evil sons of Eli. And God killed them. Then here in chapter 8, it came to pass when Samuel was old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. And they were judges in Beersheba, and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. This is Samuel's two sons. There's two other sons in the early part of Genesis or in Leviticus. There's two sons there in the tenth chapter of Leviticus. Do you remember who they were? They were very evil, huh? Nadab and Abihu. These were two evil sons, two evil brothers, Nadab and Abihu. Now, these two sons were sons of who? Huh? No. Aaron. (laughs) They were sons of Aaron, and Aaron is the first high priest in Israel. Does anybody remember their brother's name? Ithamar and Eliezer. Ithamar and Eliezer. And 
Nadab and Abihu, what did they do that made God kill them? They offered strange fire. And what did God tell Aaron, Ithamar, and Eliezer? What did he tell them they'd do if they mourned over these two sons that he killed? Huh? He said, I will kill you if you mourn over these two boys. They knew not to offer strange fire. We don't know what the strange fire was. Strange fire, these were high priests. They were all high priests. These guys would have been high priests if they'd lived. These are the only two that lived, and they had 24 sons amongst them, 24. Well, they had to, they had to, uh, there's two fires in Israel. There's the candlesticks and this altar of God. Now, all the sacrifices are offered on the altar. You had the candlesticks, not the candlesticks, you had the table of showbread on the north side of the outer sanctuary table of showbread. We don't know how it's shaped. You had the altar of incense, and had the you had the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Well, the fire that was offered on the altar of incense had to come from the altar. That was the law of God. You get anywhere else, you are offering strange fire. I don't know whether it was they had to get the fire from the altar to light the incense here to take it inside the Holy of Holies, inside the veil. I don't know what it was. Maybe they went over here and took fire off of these candlesticks and saying it's not as far over there as over here. Or maybe they maybe they they offered the wrong formula. The incense was an exact formula. Maybe they offered the wrong formula. Whatever it was, God killed them. You can't go against God. You get in trouble with God. So Where was I? Okay, God kills them. He tells Aaron and the two surviving sons, and all of the high priests will come out of these two from then on. And that's another story in itself. He says, if you mourn for these boys, I will kill you. Don't you put on any sackcloth and no ashes and don't mourn for them. They went against me. They're dead because of that. You think God is not serious about his word? I wouldn't mess with God, or I wouldn't mess with the preacher of God. Now, so his two sons, Samuel's two sons, are evil. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in their ways. Make us a man king. God was their king before that. Jesus was the I am of the Old Testament. He said he was. Therefore, he was king of Israel in the Old Testament. He was king of the Jews in the Old Testament. He didn't start being king of the Jews in the New. He was king in the Old. Well, Samuel warns them in this chapter. If you you have a king, God's got an arsenal right now. And men will have in their arsenal, they'll have chariots, they'll have spears, and they'll have swords. But God in his arsenal has got earthquakes, lightning bolts, 
You think you can match that? God will turn the world upside down, floods and waters, and he'll turn loose all of the elements upon the world. We still want a king. All right. They're going to take your daughters and put them over in the palace. They'll be bakers, confectioners. You'll never see them. Your sons, it was the it was the custom of the kings to have 50 men running before their chariot into battle. Your sons will be over there running before the king into battle, and they'll be killed right and left. Is that what you want? Give us a king. All right. So when you get into that ninth chapter, God sends Samuel on a search to find the man to be king. And he finds there was a man in verse chapter 9, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish and the son of Abiel and the son of Zeror, the son of Hekoroth, the son of Aphrah, a Benjamite, a mighty man, and he had a son. Remember, he's a Benjamite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, and he had a son named Saul. And God's going to search, have Samuel search Saul out and anoint him king. Since you're asking for a king, I'm going to give you the wrong king, God says. What makes him wrong? He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And the king has to come out of Judah. Benjamin is the twelfth son, twelfth son of Jacob, and Judah is the fourth son. And when Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, is blessing his sons, his 12 sons, giving them the blessings and the cursings over in that 49th chapter of Genesis. Here's what he says. When Judah comes before him to receive his blessing, these are the words of God in Genesis 40, uh, in Genesis 49. In Genesis, the 49th chapter, Verse 1, Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear your sons of Jacob, and hearken to Israel your father. Jacob's name was Israel. Chase Israel in the 32nd chapter of this book. And he goes through here and starts with Reuben. He's unstable as water. More or less offers a curse. Simeon and Levi... They kind of have a curse on them, but he gets down here to Judah, the fourth son. Verse 8. Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be on the neck of thine enemies. That means to conquer them. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. We speak of the lion of Judah. Jesus was the lion of Judah. He was of the tribe of Judah. David was of the tribe of Judah. When David is anointed, Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin, and he goes into a rage. I'm going to kill him. And he goes from the 19th chapter of 1 Samuel all the way to the end of the book in the 31st chapter, 
trying to kill David. All those chapters, he's after David. And it's because of envy, jealousy. He wants what David has and is accusing David of trying to steal his throne and it was God that gave it to him. David didn't go in there and take over the throne. He said, what am I? I'm just nothing. Why would I be king of Israel? Judah's a lion swept from the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion who shall rouse him up. The scepter will not depart from Judah. It will never depart. God had to plan the downfall of Saul. He had to give him an evil mind to want to, want to kill David. He didn't accept it. David's going to die, Saul said. And he spends the rest of his life from the time that David is introduced into his court. Saul spends the rest of his life trying to kill David. Believe it or not, Saul is the anointed of the Lord. God picked him out. The Bible says there wasn't a goodlier man in all of Israel. But the Bible also says that an evil spirit from God entered Saul. An evil spirit from the Lord came from God. Entered Saul. And we'll see Saul in heaven. He's called the anointed of the Lord. And the Bible says the spirit of the Lord entered into Saul in the 12th chapter of 1 Samuel. And David said, you can't kill Saul, Abishai, nephew. You can't kill him. When they had opportunity to kill him twice, he said, you can't do that. He's the anointed of the Lord. If God wants him dead, he'll have to kill him. And God did. It shows you how much of a believer you can be and how honorary and how jealous and envious you can be of somebody else. The scepter shall not depart from Judah and all other givers between his feet until shallow. That's a variation of shalom. Peace is come, speaking of Christ. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be unto Judah. Well, back over here in 1 Samuel, God picked out one of the tribe of Benjamin. Wrong place. Saul has got to start falling on his face from the start, and he does. He goes to war. He Well, let me go ahead and read this part. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and goodly. There was not among the children of Israel a goodlier, beautiful Favored, cheerful, pleasant. But boy, when envy comes in, your cheerfulness being one of the good people, you get an ugly look to you when you're envious. So Samuel finds him, says, God sent me to find you. You're the one that's to be king over Israel. But God's going to have to give Saul an evil heart. And when he does... He's going to come after David, kill him. Spends, most of this book is spent, Saul chasing David and trying to get him, say, I'm going to kill him. And then when he doesn't manage to do it, and he gets caught in his evil acts, he would say, well, I'm not going to kill David. He'd said that so many times by the time David said, I know the time is going to come. After Saul kept saying, I'm not going to kill you. 
He said, Saul will kill me one day if I don't, if we don't, if I don't do something. David knew that Saul was dishonest. He was uh, the anointed of the Lord, but he wasn't being right in his mind. It shows you what can happen to a good man when he gets envious. How did he get envious? Let's look and see. Look over here. Saul is anointed. He's called by God. And then he goes out to fight the Ammonites in chapter 11. He goes crazy, gets mad, just goes off the deep end. Saul was the tallest man in Israel. You think God needs somebody with muscles and tall? Don't need that at all. And he's the right heart. He's a gigantic man. And he, in that 11th chapter, the men of Jabesh Gilead, in verse 1 of chapter 11, the men of Jabesh Gilead are threatened by the king of the Ammonites. And they are, that's a city in Israel. Well, later on, Saul saves the men of Jabesh Gilead in this 11th chapter. When you get to the 31st chapter and Saul is killed in his last battle, he's gone up to northern Israel to be in battle. And when he's killed, the men of Jabesh Gilead come and get his body so that it won't be defiled by the Philistines. Why? Because of this chapter right here. He rescues them. But he gets crazy. Saul would get crazy sometimes. He got crazy. And then when you get over there to the 12th chapter, that's the coronation of Saul. He's crowned king. And Samuel is warning them through this entire chapter. He's warning Israel, don't you go after these sun and tree gods. You won't get in trouble. He said, God will withhold the rain from you. You won't have any crops. And he said, worse than that, God will send gully washes of rain and it'll wash your crops away. And they're going, oh, please don't do that. Samuel, don't tell us that. It didn't do any good. They did anyway, didn't they? Then you get into the 13th chapter. This starts Saul's rebellion. 13th chapter. He is told by Samuel, go to Gilgal, wait seven days. And if you're waiting seven days in Gilgal, Gilgal is the first, is the first place that Israel encamped when they crossed the Jordan River. I don't know if Gilgal is there. Here it is right here. Gilgal, right here. When they crossed the Jordan River to possess the land after being in Egypt for 400 years and 40 years in the wilderness, Samuel told Saul, go to Gilgal and wait seven days and I'll send a message. Saul went there and waited six and a half days and said, we got to do something. The Philistines are aligning against us and there's too many of them. Uh, we got to get, we got to offer sacrifice to God. And this starts Saul's downfall here in this chapter. And Saul comes, Samuel comes, rebukes Saul, 
and says, don't you remember what God said for you to do? You wait here till I get here. And he didn't. Then you get into the 14th chapter. Saul has got 3,000 men and the Philistines are covering the land. They never did run them out when they came in and settled. So Saul is, he don't know what to do. He goes and hides in a cave. And then on the scene comes Jonathan, the son of Saul, and his companion, his sword bearer. And they're in the cave of place called the cave of Michmash. And there's nothing but Philistines on top of that wall up there. And Jonathan believes God. Remember the promise of God is if you're obedient to me, you'll go against your enemy one way and they'll flee seven ways. So Jonathan says to this sword bearer, this right-hand man, men, you are going, if they tell us, if these Philistines tell us, come on up, We'll go up there and we'll kill everybody up there, me and you. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of faith. And the Philistines said, come on up. And they pulled him up. And Jonathan and his sword bearer, they had a heyday that day. They killed 20 men on top of that cliff, just the two of them. They were bad guys to mess with. Well, you get on into the next chapter. This is Saul's total downfall. And all the time that Jonathan is doing this, Jonathan ends up being David's best friend, and he's the son of Saul. And all the time Saul is chasing David, he's having little conflags with his son Jonathan. What about David? Where is he? And Jonathan is going consulting with David and hiding David from him. And it all happened due to what happened in this third, in this 15th chapter. The Lord has Samuel go to Saul and say, Samuel, tell Saul to go down to Amalek. Amalek was just just over the dead over the Red Sea from Egypt, where that. Uh, Amalek was just over in Amalek was when they came out of Egypt, it was just over here in the in this desert here. And Saul is up here in Jerusalem, and God is saying, Go down here to Amalek and kill everybody there. They had attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt unprovoked. And he says, kill everybody in Amalek. This is God telling God telling Samuel to tell Saul this. Don't save anybody. He goes down there. He's supposed to burn the town down. Why? In all probability because no one was practicing quarantine laws written in the book of Leviticus except Israel. If they'd had disease, they'd have brought it back with them. And if you kill the babies, they're going to go be with the Lord. He said, kill everybody. Burn everything. Kill all the animals. Don't bring nothing back. 
in this 15th chapter in this 15th chapter of 1 Samuel after Saul comes back from this great supposed to be siege of that town annihilation Samuel says Saul did you do what God said do he said yes I did everything and Samuel says then what is this bleating B-L-E-A-T I-N-G that means what is this bleating of these sheep that I hear where did you get those well you see God you see Samuel uh, I couldn't help it the people made me bring some of these sheep back so we could offer sacrifice to God that's when Samuel said to obey is better than sacrifice God doesn't want you to perform a ritual he wants you to obey him he said kill them all and what is this king Agag doing here well uh, and Saul is stuttering and Samuel says give me a sword and he hacks Agag to the ground he's just hunks of meat on the ground and he said your day is done in Israel Saul God says tell Saul it's over for him go down south go to the house of of Jesse in southern Judah I've chosen me a king among his sons in Judah and he goes down there and when he hits the city limits the people are terrified of prophets they know they can call fire from heaven they're scared to death of prophets and he goes down to the house of Jesse and he makes his oldest and tallest son to come out his name is Eliab B-L-I-A-B and when he comes out even Samuel is fooled he said this is a gigantic man he's one of the He's one of the strongest men in Saul's army. He's a hero. Surely this has to be God's anointed. And J.C. said the same thing. This is my eldest. Look here. And God said, I haven't chosen this. He called Eliab a this. He said, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is where Saul's envy starts kicking in. Because Samuel goes down to the house of Jesse and said, and he may have seven of his sons to pass before him. He says, is this all thy sons? Is this all you have? He said, there remaineth yet the youngest, and he keeps the sheep. He said, well, you go get him. I'm not leaving here till he comes in. And they bring David come walking in just as he left the sheep. God says, this is him. Anoint him. He's king of Israel as of this day. That's when the evil spirit from God enters into Saul. He starts getting jealous of David. The next chapter, 17th chapter, he goes out and kills a Goliath. David comes in Jerusalem. In that 18th chapter, and the women are singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousand. Saul gets livid. He says, I won't have this from him. And from then on, to the end of the book, his envy takes hold. 
And he's trying to kill David constantly. Has time and again. He thinks he has opportunity and he doesn't. I'm going to have to come back next week. This is like a cliffhanger. And go through the rest of this. Saul was the epitome of envy. God destroyed him finally. God will destroy you for your envy. That is not like Christ. We're predestined to be like Jesus, aren't we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for truth. Lord, I I just want to serve you. Give me health and strength to do that. Give the church strength to understand the truth when they hear it. Lord, I'm, I'm sorry for not being the man I could be through the years. Forgive me for all those things I, I've done. I pray that from now on, the rest of my life will be spent just seeking your glory, your fame, not mine. Fight our battles. Lord, we'll give you praise for everything. Let us jury elect in Christ's name, amen. How are you doing? Hanging in there. How about you, sir? Thank you for being there for me. So far as what? Is that neighbors? We're glad you're here with us. This is my neighbor, Holly. Lives across the street from me. He just came here from. Oregon. Oh, great. He saw us on the internet up there, and he wants to. I heard he's pretty. This is Derek. Hey, Derek. Derek. We're neighbors of Jim and Mary. By God, God ordained to that. He's he's standing right across the street from us. And this is Chip, my brother. What are y'all doing? Love you, Jim. Doodling. <laughs> hey, Chip. Uh, you give me a clip, huh? I'll be back next week anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing, our guy? Have you been, have you been studying the word prior to that? Uh, kind of off and on. Uh, not like I probably should have been, but... Jim speaks the truth. What are you doing? <laughs> 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 <laughs>